0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I am joined again by Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. So Jonathan has has joined me as part of this little series that we're doing while DeBellina is on maternity leave, um, having different podcast co-hosts on the show to talk about their show's specialty. So in Jonathan's case, as the co-host of Tech Stuff, that is, of course, technology. But we're also going to be talking about history, so technology in history. And last time we talked, we were discussing Discussing cryptography, specifically cryptography as used by the Axis powers during World War Two.
1: That's correct. Yes. And we were really focusing mainly on the Enigma machine, which I think everyone would say is probably the most famous uh, machine as far as cryptography goes. It's one of those that a lot of people, even if they don't really know a lot about cryptography, often they'll say, Enigma machine, that sounds familiar.
0: Well, and Alan Turing is so big these days. Right. He's finally getting the, the credit that was long due. Yes. And he is so closely connected to the Enigma machine and breaking that code that, yeah, a lot of people have heard about it recently.
1: definitely. Definitely. And hopefully they don't think that it was a device used by the Riddler. (laughs) Different (laughs) Enigma.
0: If they've listened, if you guys have listened to that episode, you already know how that machine works. And we also talked a little bit about the Japanese code purple, which is a very different, but also um, a similar, more similar to the Enigma than some of the other codes we're going to be talking about today.
1: Right. Now, because some of the stuff we're going to talk about is related to the Enigma, uh I was going to give just a quick overview of the Enigma so people can remember how that works. It was a machine that had three or more rotors in it. And those rotors you would position in a very particular way to send a message. The person who's receiving the message has another Enigma machine. They set their rotors to the same position that you have yours at. And you would determine this by a code book. You would each have a code book that would have the date and possibly even the time and what setting you needed to have your Enigma machine set at. Looked like a typewriter with a big bunch of light bulbs on the other end of it. When you would press a key, a light bulb would light up, but it wouldn't be the light bulb that corresponds with the letter you push. Never. Never. That letter would be determined by the pathway that the electric current takes through those rotors. The rotors would turn each time you'd press a key, so that pathway changes each time, introducing an element of randomness or pseudo-randomness into your message. So that way, as you continue to type out this message, the key becomes hard to crack. And ideally, the only way you can decode this message is if you have that Enigma machine or an Enigma machine with the same rotors set at the same position, and the code book so that you have everything ready to go.
0: Because with all of these different combinations, all these possible combinations, you have in turn almost an endless possibility of ciphertext that you're going to be producing.
1: Effectively endless. It is. It does have an end because once you get all the way through all of the rotors, depending on how many rotors there are, there could be three or four, uh, you do have a, a finite number of combinations, but it's such a huge number as to be astronomical. All right. Which is pretty tough if you got a pencil and paper.
0: And because of that, because of the astronomical uh, possibilities, the Nazis did consider the enigma unbreakable. They
1: did. So much so that it's going to play a big role in part of what we're going to talk about next. Hubris here. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I I think it's definitively hubris.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so now that we've sort of refreshed, or Jonathan has refreshed you on how the Enigma machine worked, we're going to talk about the Allied version of it almost. Something called the Type-X machine. It was the British variation specifically of the Enigma. And the full name of it was the RAF Royal Air Force Enigma with Type-X attachment. So they didn't even really bother changing the name. It is an Enigma. We've just Modified it,
1: yeah, and it was uh, it was like the big daddy version of the Enigma. Now the Enigma could run on battery power. You could hook up a big battery to the Enigma, and that would power it. Because really, the only power that needed was to generate this electric current that will light a light bulb. But mm-hmm. That's all it was doing. So
0: it's semi-portable.
1: Yeah the um, the Type X, not so much. It used AC power. You had to plug it in because it was uh, it was a monster, huge. You would not move one of these things, so you couldn't. Have a lot of them out in the wild, but um, it was uh, it was built on the same sort of premise as the Enigma, and it was therefore very secure if you used it properly. Now. The interesting thing to me about this is not so much how it was different from the Enigma. It didn't use light bulbs, for ex- example. It used teletype machines. So you would actually type out your message, and a ciphered version would be uh, produced. Because the Enigma
0: was a, a two-man job.
1: Right. You had to have one person to type in the letters and another person watching the light bulbs Copying and down it out. the
0: cipher text.
1: And just like that, on the other side, you had to have someone type in the ciphered message, and the person looking at the light bulbs would be writing out the plain, the plain text. text yeah. Uh in this case you would have this uh this sort of teletype uh approach and someone on the other end would have to feed through the teletype stuff so that you could get the plain text version out. But you know otherwise it's very similar. Just take the light bulbs out really and and replace it with teletype. Um again very very secure uh it had five rotors but only three of them would rotate. So Like the Enigma machine that would have these rotating rotors that rotate, usually the first one on the left would rotate every keystroke. And then once it made a full rotation to get back to the starting position, the second rotor would rotate one And then you could go another full rotation, the second rotate again. So if you had a really long message, it would eventually get all three rotors rotating at least once or twice. Okay. In this case, you had three rotors that could rotate. The last two were just meant to allow you to create a good starting position. Uh, But they would not rotate. So if you went long enough, those first three rotors would repeat. Granted, that would be a really long message. Yeah. (laughs) But it could happen. Um, So that was another difference. The interesting thing to me, two things. One is that the Germans were so confident that their Enigma machine was unbreakable, and they knew the Type X machine was based on the Enigma machine, they didn't really bother to try and break so the this codes. this is
0: the hubris we're talking about, right?
1: This is look, we know our codes are amazing. No one could break them, so including us, we couldn't break our own They're codes. They're
0: not going to break our codes, so why we're not would we gonna bother be able to break theirs?
1: And uh, and they they employed probably about half the number of Cryptographers that the British had, let alone the rest of the Allies. And, uh, they, there were a couple other differences with the Type X, but the other big thing was that the, the British had an attitude about <laughs> using a mechanical device to code things. They didn't think of it as terribly, um, proper. And also, you have to understand the British Navy has existed for hundreds of years. Henry VII essentially established the British Navy.
0: This is Jonathan the Admiral getting back into yes. the show.
1: <laughs> here's here's where my worlds overlap. <laughs> yes, Henry VII began to establish the the British Navy, which really got its start under Henry VIII. It didn't, under Henry VII, it was about eight boats. Uh, by the end of Henry VIII's reign, it was a little bit better. By Elizabeth's reign, it was a force to be reckoned with, partially because of weather. <laughs> but
0: yeah. Spanish Armada. But
1: at any rate. winds. This is this is a this is a storied branch of the British military. It is it has hundreds of years of history. And the commanders of the British Navy sort of looked down upon the Royal Air Force, which was in their eyes an infant branch of the military. It was brand new and no tiny little branch of the military that's only been around for a few years could possibly tell a branch that's been around for centuries what the best way is to encipher a message. That's just being ridiculous, which I think is quintessentially British.
0: <laughs> we might get some emails over this one. But, yeah, I mean... You, I, can,
1: you can send those to techstuff@discovery.com.
0: <laughs> but I, I think that's that's a good point, too, because if we're talking about this uh, advanced technology, it's obviously got to be accepted and adopted by everybody who counts to really do its job like it's supposed to do. It's, it's not going to help if... Uh, for one, it's not going to help if you're... Germany and you're thinking that it's unbreakable because it's based off of yours. But it's also not going to help if, if you don't want to use your own country's code.
1: Right. Yes. It's, And we have to remember, within all of these countries, there are internal politics at play all the time. And it's very easy for us to boil down the story of World War II to these big, big, big ideas. But when you start looking into it, you realize that there were no simple and easy stories here. They're all very, very complex. So even uh, going forward with a specific technology or approach always had a lot of back and forth within a country before anything was done. So it really should come as no surprise. Uh, it's just that uh, you wonder how things would have been different had groups acted earlier upon these technologies.
0: So was the Type-X ever broken if nobody was really trying to break it?
1: No, not that I can tell, (laughs) as far as I know. I mean, not that it was unbreakable. It could have been broken had they taken the the time and effort and if they had captured code books. And
0: devoted the the manpower to doing it. Now,
1: granted, you're talking about a machine that's so large that probably wasn't put into too many areas out in the field. So that's another thing to think about. This is not necessarily a machine that would have been easy to capture on a ship. We're one talking- that
0: was, wouldn't have been as vulnerable as the Enigma machines that were out on out on ships, out on weather boats, as you were discussing. Correct. Um, in places where you could pick one up. So we haven't yet talked about the codes Americans were using. We've talked about some code-breaking efforts, but the U.S. was using the ECM Mark II or Cigabra machine, and the patent for that was filed in 1944.
1: Yes, and it was eventually granted.
0: (laughs) But when was it granted?
1: 2001.
0: So what happened there? Well,
1: what happens there is if you patent something, you have to reveal how it works.
0: Okay. Nobody wanted to do that.
1: Why would you (laughs) do that? Um, I think it's mainly a a secrecy issue. Now, granted, even filing for patents means that that information gets out there. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about a machine that's designed to cipher uh, things, you don't necessarily want to reveal to the world, hey, I've got this great thing that makes unbreakable messages. Let me tell you how it works.
0: It's kind of the equivalent of what we discussed in the last episode, the Japanese announcing Code purple, in code red.
1: And this machine, again, not that much different from the way the Enigma and Type-X machines worked in the sense that, again, it it uses rotors to try and randomize connections. Uh, Now, in this case, it had three banks with five rotors each, so 15 rotors total. And, uh, it wasn't, not all of those rotors were meant to guide a, an electric current so that you would have a ciphered message on the other end, but this was a very complex device. Uh, also, it was, uh, again, a machine that was not terribly portable. It was not used a lot in World War II for that reason. Um, that was the big drawback to a lot of these devices, is that they, because of their design, they were not easy to deploy in the field, and so they had very limited use. You could use them for domestic communication, but for something to to, to issue commands on the field, you're not
0: going to issue field orders, and you're not going to get field reports. That's
1: back. right. That's right. So the United States really didn't use it a lot. They depended upon an entirely different approach that was absolutely ingenious.
0: They did. And this is one of my favorite code-related World War II stories. It's one that Candace and Jane talked about before on this show, but we're going to discuss it some more really focusing on how the codes work. It's the code talkers, of course. And usually you think of the Navajo code talkers, although we're going to talk about a few other Native American tribes that were used for code purposes during the war. But the decision to use native american languages on their own not just as a code wasn't anything new native american languages had been used before
1: that's right they'd been used in wartime before mm-hmm. and uh they've been used in world war 1 there were uh, the choctaw uh languages used in that in that arena but 141st infantry yeah choctaw it's uh, it's and it proved to be a very effective tool and there are a lot of different reasons for this but a big one is that as a group, the Native American languages are so far removed from the languages found in the rest of the world that anyone unfamiliar with them, it is very difficult to understand, especially because within each individual language, there are lots of different dialects and there are a lot of different ways of saying the same, same group of phenomes where it means two different things if you, depending on the way you say it. And so it's a very complex language.
0: So it's not at all as if you, if you know one romance language, you can kind of get the hang of another. That's
1: right. In fact, the last research I read, which was quite some time ago, uh, said that the closest anyone has come so far is potentially identifying a distant relative of basic Native American languages with a language that originated out of Siberia. Wow. But that was it. It's not
0: That would be quite some time ago, plenty of time for the language to evolve dramatically and, and into all these thousands of exactly. other languages.
1: And they didn't even – even the report said we can't be sure there's a connection. It only looks like there's a potential connection, which means that with it being so alien to the various forces in the Axis powers – That's a good place to look if you want to be able to send messages without anyone knowing what it is you're saying.
0: So, and that's just, we're just discussing the language without any additional securities applied to it. That's right. Just Choctaw in this case. Unless you have somebody else who knows the language, that's going to be a pretty secure message. But. The use in World War II took it a step further. It would be a code based on the language. So another native speaker, another bilingual speaker, wouldn't be able to just read the code and understand what it was saying. They might recognize the words, but they couldn't decipher the meaning of the message.
1: First, they'd have to learn about the whole reading thing, because Navajo is a spoken language, Mm -hmm. not a written language. They had to create a phonetic alphabet so that they could represent the sounds made uh, in the Navajo speech, to have a written version of a text or, or of, of a message. Otherwise, it would just be a, a voice message. And so that there's that. You've already got to learn the phonetic alphabet to understand whatever the language is or whatever the message is. And then on top of that, it has this code. So... For an example, I mean, I could come up to Sarah and just say a string of unrelated words, which to anyone listening would sound like I had gone crazy. (laughs) Which we call Wednesday here at How Stuff Works. But because Sarah knows the code words, I know the vocabulary
0: sheet. Right.
1: Then she can get a meaningful message out of that. Same sort of thing here, except with the added complexity of using a language that no one in Europe or Asia knew about
0: Well, and I'm going to throw in a few more complexities here with Navajo. It's tonal. So one spelling can mean different things. This is something we discussed a little bit on our Chung Sisters episode with Vietnamese, which is also a tonal episode. Uh, so you really have to know what you're talking about mm-hmm. if, if you're going to be speaking Navajo. And then, um, like like you were saying earlier, it's just not well known. You know, chances are you're not going to have studied Navajo if you are a young Japanese person, whereas you very likely may have attended school in the United States or, or somewhere else, or picked up English, and um, even you might know English uh, colloquialisms, English slang, right. um, have a familiarity with words that might seem more secure, especially in the in the 30s or 40s than than they would now, but. Navajo is a whole different level from that.
1: Right. And its I'm glad you said Japanese because we hadn't really pointed it out, but the Navajo Code Talkers were used exclusively in the Pacific Theater. They were. That was, that was where the United States decided to concentrate their efforts, and in fact, they were part of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, that was the branch of the military that employed the Navajo Code Talkers. They were not the only Native American speakers who were used in this capacity in World War II, but that... Again, the most famous ones.
0: The Comanches, for instance, were used in Europe. They were, were part of the army rather than the Marines. That's right. Um, so different different Indian, Native American tribes used in different theaters, in different branches of the military for different purposes. But we have to go back to how somebody... Decided to do this because it seems like such an ingenious idea. It, it seems obvious on the one hand. Um, if you have these languages with very few speakers, they are all in your part of the world and have traditionally been kind of isolated. Their language has been isolated. That seems obvious. But how do you, how do you make that jump to, to create a code based on those languages?
1: Right. And this comes down to a man named Philip Johnston who was the son of a Protestant missionary and had grown up on Navajo land and learned the language. He was fluent he in He was Navajo. fluent, and he also was, uh, I believe, a World War I veteran, he and he, he knew about the use of Choctaw. And so using his experience both as a veteran and as someone who had grown up with the Navajo language, he suggested using Navajo uh, as a means of, of communicating secret messages into, you know, across different lines. And it was a brilliant idea, but it wasn't immediately latched no, onto as a brilliant uh, idea. No, it
0: wasn't. He he traveled. He was in L.A. He worked as a civil engineer. And uh, in 1942, he went to Camp Elliott, which was outside of San Diego, and presented this idea. But uh, like you said, it, it wasn't something that was un- immediately taken up, partly mm-hmm. because it didn't sound... Flexible. It didn't sound like the codes we've been talking about earlier where you can shift things around and you have a totally different code and something that's not flexible that doesn't have that random quality that we've been uh, harping on the whole time sounds breakable.
1: Right. But because the language was so inscrutable. It was unbreakable.
0: Yeah, that was better than any series of five rotors you might have. So um, he he did get a, a go-ahead to look into it a little bit more, and he recruited four bilingual speakers, guys who spoke Navajo and English fluently. And uh, he did a little demonstration. Sometimes a demonstration is the best way to prove your point. Mm-hmm. He broke them up into two groups. And one group of two received a basic sort of field order in English. They simply translated that order into Navajo. It was passed on to the other group who translated it back into English. And the, you know, the, the fear was that Maybe if you go through I, I'm sure if you gave me something to translate in French and then you tried to translate it back into into English, it wouldn't be quite right
1: <laughs> well yeah if you if you use even translate uh, translation engines online mm-hmm. and you translate oh, they're the, right, yeah. translate the same phrase back and forth between the same two languages, do it about five times and what you end up with is going to be something that's resembles but it's not identical. To your first name of
0: telephone, essentially <laughs> and when you
1: think about military orders, specificity is very important.
0: But in this case, with this trial example, it it just worked fine. You know, it was exactly the same message. So, Camp Elliott's commanding officer was impressed by the demonstration, and he immediately requested 200 Navajo translators. He couldn't get that many. There, were, uh, he was only allowed 30 for sort of a further pilot project. And of those 30, there were ultimately 29 that went to basic training outside of San Diego. And I I like. Um, of the description of their life there because you think of them, they would immediately just be sequestered into this little code talker program and that Mm -hmm. would be all that they were working on. But they were very typical Marines in training and they did typical Marine stuff. I read an article by William R. Wilson in American History and, and he said that a writer for the Marine Corps Chevron reported that, quote, at present, they're a typical Marine outfit of budding specialists. They gripe about the things that all Marines gripe about. Liberty, chow, and the San Diego weather.
1: Now, I have to take exception to this. (laughs) Having been to San Diego, the weather there I can describe as nice.
0: I know. I was going to say, like, these guys are the the Comanche code talkers I read about were stationed at Fort Benning in Georgia. Yeah, no.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fort Benning, I could definitely understand if you had complaints. Humidity alone would be enough. But but San Diego?
0: <laughs> maybe they were sad they couldn't go out and enjoy it more. Maybe,
1: maybe. I, I also have always said that San Diego has essentially two weather seasons, which is uh, not on fire and on fire.
0: <laughs> well, so regardless of how the weather was in San Diego at the time, they were doing basic training activities. But, of course, their main job was to develop a code because this wasn't just going to be Navajo messages were laid entirely in Navajo. There would be extra complications in there. And it ultimately had two parts. There was a 26-letter phonetic alphabet, which used... Navajo words to represent letters. Mm-hmm. And then there were a few non-Navajo words thrown in there. I'm guessing this is because these uh, letters wouldn't be represented by words in Navajo. That right. was my understanding of it, at least. But mm-hmm. you'd have, for instance, ice for the letter I, zinc for the letter Z. Um, to make this less uh, obvious to break, really frequently repeated letters, vowels, or frequently repeated consonants would have more than one code word associated with them.
1: Right, which we sort of talked about in our last episode. We did. So it's the same sort of uh, idea. And I also like that they came up with other words to describe things that would not appear in the Navajo language. The Navajo did not have a word, for example, for grenade.
0: Yeah, so this was the second the second layer of this code. You'd have this alphabet, but then you'd also have a a vocabulary sheet, sort of. code words. Of of military terms, Mm -hmm. English military terms, that needed direct Navajo translations. And um, this would make it so much faster, too, if you're sending a message to just have words that, equal other words. Right.
1: As, as opposed to having to spell everything out with this phonetic alphabet.
0: Exactly. Um, but yeah, you, you were about to start talking about the words, yeah. military terms that clearly don't have a Navajo precedent.
1: Right. Grenades became potatoes.
0: <laughs> I think that's my favorite. Yeah. Sparrowhawk no, was dive bomber. My
1: favorite is the one for Adolf Hitler.
0: Okay. So, you know, you can't just have Adolf Hitler. So you got to describe the man.
1: Yeah. So in Navajo, they use the phrase mustache smeller.
0: And and then Mussolini is pretty good too. Big gourd chin. Yeah, there,
1: um, there might have been a a slight uh, opportunity to to uh, uh, poke some fun at the enemy and thus uh, turn them into something that would be uh, less menacing in their <laughs> some messages. Some morale boosting. Yeah. Um.
0: But it is it is certainly colorful, and a lot of the the stories about the Navajo code talkers. There are these examples of fun or i don't know mischievous behavior almost
1: yeah there's um the more stories i read the more i'm thinking these men were not just brave but also a little crazy
0: yeah yeah to to Go out there. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about that more in a second. (laughs) Um, so the first thing to do though, once they developed this code, was test it against other bilingual Navajo. So you're going to assume that if you only speak English or you speak Japanese and English, it's going to be pretty hard to break. But what if the enemy gets a hold of a Navajo, a Navajo soldier who's Mm -hmm. not a code talker? Would that Navajo soldier be able to break this code. And they tested that, and and bilingual Navajo speakers could not break the code. So it had enough complexity in its own right to be unbreakable, it seemed. Right.
1: So just understanding what the words were weren't enough to understand what the message was.
0: Exactly. So the first Navajo code talkers reported to Guadalcanal. Ultimately, there were more than 400, which makes them the largest group of Native American code talkers during Mm -hmm. World War II. Um, And they really accomplished a lot of important things during the war, not just being able to send and receive messages so quickly, which is something we've talked about Earlier, uh, this taking time, machines being really hard to carry around. User error. User error, yeah. If, if those problems are eliminated, that opens up a lot of new possibilities. But they orchestrated the Iwo Jima landing. They sent and received about 800 messages in the two days after that landing, something I thought was Particularly impressive, and the Japanese first, they picked up on the code pretty fast. So it wasn't just like they weren't aware of it, and that's why it remained unbroken. Unbroken, they they did know that something was happening. Yeah, they
1: knew there was communication, but they could not for the life of them, figure out what that communication was. They, they yeah. just knew that someone was talking to someone else. And
0: it didn't make any sense. And and there was a great article about uh, the Code Talkers by Lynn Eskew in History Today. And she described one Code Talker hearing a Japanese soldier come on the frequency and ask in English, who is this? Who's this? Right. Uh, and the Navajo guys would speak in English and usually just... Cuss the guy out, (laughs) get off the line, something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's your typical party line conversation.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, We did mention though that there are a lot of a lot of hazards. You know, you said that you'd have to be almost crazy. I mean, you could think of that in a different way. That they probably knew they were going to be drafted anyway. And this is at least something. It's a really It's a way to use a language that you've probably been forbidden from using for a lot of your life in government-run schools, Um, a way to be with your family members and your friends who you've grown up with. But it was really dangerous, and part of that was misidentification.
1: Right. It wasn't just the normal dangers of war, which are (laughs) varied and great. Yeah. Um, Great as in huge, not as in wonderful. Uh, and. They had to deal with that, but also the the very real possibility that they would be misidentified as a Japanese soldier mm-hmm. by Americans who just didn't know any better. And so uh, very often they had to have a white escort to go with them so that there was someone to identify them as, this guy's a Navajo code talker, he's on our side.
0: And kind of a another scary element of that is sometimes those escorts were charged with killing the soldier should he fall into enemy hands and i don't know if that ever actually had to happen um i did read one account of a navajo a navajo soldier who was not a code talker being captured by the japanese but because the code was strong saying okay i can read these words but they don't make any sense to me right um i didn't see anything about one of the code talkers being captured but those were those were the orders they didn't want this unbreakable code to be broken by right. a, a prisoner.
1: It's just like when we were talking well not just like, but it's similar to when we were talking about how code books could fall into the wrong hands and that compromises a code. In this case the code book is a person. A man,
0: yeah.
1: And so it's a I mean it's it's a very real risk of war. And so that was a, a grim but uh, necessary reality for the soldiers in the Pacific Theater was that if we want to keep this this code secure a code that millions of people are going to depend upon, mm-hmm. then that's a measure we have to take.
0: It's a, it's a scary thought to think about. Sure is. Um, so, you know, we've, we've discussed the Navajo and, and we mentioned the Comanche. We should say there are also Lakota, Code Talkers, Sioux, Hopi, and um, other Native American tribes as well. So um, it wasn't just about, one tribe. It wasn't just Philip Johnston's idea. Um, a lot of people were were thinking of this. But the reason why the Navajo code talker story, or part of the reason why their story is so much better known, one reason they were just the larger group. You know, yeah. four hundred guys. Um, but. It also kind of comes down to something that got Johnson court-martialed. The government, because they were so concerned about this code and, and just the Japanese figuring out that Navajo was even the basis for it, that they weren't allowing the code talkers' letters to their families to go home. And um, finally, Johnson, back in the United States, was approached by the Navajo Indian Affairs Superintendent, representing some families who hadn't heard from their sons for a long time, asking if they knew what might be going on, if he knew what was going on, he didn't go into too many details, but he did explain that the boys were on this top secret project. Mm -hmm. Word about that eventually got published. It got out and he was court-martialed. But on his very last day of work, he stole all of the code talker documents because he was afraid kind of rightly so, or legitimately that maybe after the war, this would all just be sort of forgotten partly out of security, but made, maybe partly just in the tradition of, of um, not giving Native Americans a, a fair shake. Sure. Um, he was afraid that nobody would know that this had ever
1: happened. And he felt that this was a very important historical moment. That An important needed, part of American history. Right, that we needed to know. And so uh, he took it upon himself to make sure that story got told. Uh, it reminds me again when we talked in the last episode about Ultra. And about how top secret it was, and that there were people who lost their jobs because they maintained that level of secrecy, uh, even from members of government that were not not privy to the to ultra, that you know they they suffered the consequences, and they did it in order to maintain that security. Um, you can see this is serious stuff, very serious business, and it makes sense to try and protect it as much as you can. With the uh, approach with the Navajo code talkers, it's a little different than the mechanical approach that we saw with the other attempts at cryptography in that to be able to become uh, a Navajo speaker is no small task. It's not a group that you could easily assimilate yourself into, for one thing.
0: Yeah, we've got to talk about the German anthropologist, too.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well what, why don't we segue right into that?
0: <laughs> so there had been attempts in the twenties um, by the Germans to you know the knowing about the the um uh, what was the earlier Choctaw. the Choctaw use in um the earlier war. To pick up some of these Native American languages and to do that through the ruse of being a German anthropologist who goes in and studies languages with the tribe, it was a pretty transparent plot, (laughs) transparent idea. Uh, The communities were were wary of... The outsiders they in were general. Not,
1: not, not receptive, I think, is a way of saying. It. But it,
0: it also seemed, well, and, and that's why, for instance, that's why uh, Comanche was one of the languages used because um, it seemed like the Comanche had had less contact with outsiders, including Germans posing as anthropologists yes. than certain other tribes and might have a better protected language. But it seemed a little hard to believe that you could think you could just visit a tribe for a while and pick up one of the most complicated languages in the world.
1: (laughs) I think think it it just bespeaks this idea that perhaps the language would have been more closely aligned with other known languages. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, that's not the case. And because it is so different, it is a, a real challenge for someone who is not brought up in that community to learn the language. Uh, particularly since there weren't a whole lot of people willing to teach it, mm-hmm. so that was a it was a different a totally different scene with the code talkers than it was with the the cryptography machines. Now, I thought I might wrap all this up by talking about how this cryptography kind of affects us today. The yeah. sort of things that were invented during the the Second World War. Um, so you know we we send email. Back and yeah. forth, that email usually, if you're using a, a good email system, is encrypted, meaning that anyone who intercepts that message should receive just a bunch of gibberish, and they have no idea what the content of that message is. It's very important for privacy and for security. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, uh, people will insist on you only sending them encrypted messages. There's certain people who have have famously put that in blog posts. I'm thinking specifically of, of a Will Wheaton, former, <laughs> former star of Star Trek The Next Generation. But he says, if you want to email me, use encrypted email, because I don't want messages going back and forth in plain text that some third party could intercept. Well, the, the way we encrypt messages is very similar to the way that we were encrypting messages during World War II. We're using software to do it now. We're not using big electromechanical devices with
0: tapes and little numbers that write up. Right.
1: Right. There're no little d- machines that go ping as Chris would like to say. <laughs> uh it's it's all done in software, but the idea is that you take a key that turns the message into what looks to be just random letters, numbers, and characters. And then the person receiving the message has an identical key And that decodes the message. And it gets a little more complicated than that. Uh, The keys, there's like public keys versus private keys. But the idea is that uh, this is the same sort of approach to obfuscate what a a message's meaning is from anyone that it was not intended to go to. Same thing for passwords. Uh, Now, of course, with software, we were able to get way more sophisticated than we could during World War II. And so the software might create a hash, which is the product of running a message or a password through a key, that turns that into an incredibly long string of letters, numbers, and characters. So, for example, your eight-character password that you create so that you can log into your email, within the email administrator's database, that password could be hashed into a message that is 50, 100 characters long or longer, okay. depending upon what they use. But it's using the same principles of cryptography that were developed during World War World II. War II. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it's um, history applied to your devices and your internet use today.
1: Yes, yeah. If you're using bank accounts, if you're using <laughs> email addresses, if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> if you're not, then I guess I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs>
0: And I, I mean, we were, we were discussing a little bit before we recorded this. What must the, um, cryptography systems for actual, I mean, we're just talking about emails. You know, you don't want your, you don't want your bank information to get out, certainly. You don't want your emails to be read. But actual government military related stuff. I mean, it's, it's almost hard to, to imagine it. If, if these machines from the 30s, 40s, well, actually 20s even Mm -hmm. seem Fairly complicated to me, at least. Uh, I can't even wrap my mind around what a level of, of, of cryptography must be
1: today. Going today, it's yeah. it's pretty it's pretty intense. And on the flip side, code breaking has become just as sophisticated. In particular, once the development of multi-core processors happened, which I'm not going to get to. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't panic. I'm not going to get too involved here, but in general, the way a code-breaking system works is it starts. Uh, if you're using a brute force attempt, which is where you're just trying every combination you can think of in order to try and break a code, uh, depending on how many characters there are, that's that's a lot of potential combinations. Mm-hmm. And a regular processor is going through each one of those one at a time. Now, it might be doing that at an incredible rate of speed, but still, one at a time, even super fast, is going to take ages to Mm -hmm. crack. Multi-core processors made that easier by dividing the problem up into separate problems. Each core could take a bank of variations and run it through. So you've just cut down the amount of time it takes to break well, a code. Oh,
0: great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, be, be aware that usually a code breaker, in order for them to really get through tough crypt, uh, encryption, normally has to have some basis to work from. So for example, with passwords, um, you don't want to use common words You don't want to use, you don't even want to use common names or anything like that. Uh, you want to try and use as, as random a string of letters and numbers as you possibly can without it getting too difficult to remember. And as many. Yeah. You don't want to use the same one for multiple accounts. And the reason for that is that code breakers have broken into databases where companies did not store the passwords in an encrypted file, which means they had the plain text passwords. You
0: see this story
1: so often too. And if you see enough of those plain text and this is this applies to code breaking across the board. You look at the plain text, it's not just a list. You group those names together. So you look for frequencies. How many people are using specific words as passwords? Because then you know, well, these are the these are the words I should concentrate on when I'm trying to break a new system because I know based upon this frequency analysis, this is what people tend to pick for their password. A lot of times that happens to be password. password. (laughs) Don't do that. So same sort of uh, approaches were used in World War II. I mean, to tie it back together, when we were talking about common salutations and common ways of ending a message, that's the same thing. You're taking that frequency that this particular phrase or word will show up, and you're measuring that against all the intercepted messages you have, and you're trying to break that code. Same thing happens today. So... Uh, moral of the story, choose strong passwords. So
0: this has been our, our lesson of the day there you from go. Jonathan of Tech Stuff about protecting your passwords. Um, but it, it was interesting for me to learn more about all of this. I have to say the the Code Talkers really speaks more to me.
1: There's a human story there.
0: There is a story, and uh, of course there's a story with Bletchley Park mm-hmm. too and, and Code Breakers around the world. But... Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just more of a language person. So it speaks to me for that reason.
1: No, There's no maybe. So yeah.
0: <laughs> I am. I am more, more of a language person than a rotor person, I suppose. <laughs> um, but it, it did remind me a little bit of an article I read not too long ago in National Geographic that was about languages that only had a few speakers left. And I thought about how uh, just how we think of um, of endangered plants or something could have enormous potential value for some medicinal purpose we don't know of yet. There's a value in language that goes clearly outside of its cultural value and its historical value. It's something that you don't often think of, but there's something
1: to it. Yeah, it can have real utility outside of areas that you would, you know, think of as being obvious. You suddenly think that's exactly what Johnston was saying, was that we used it before we could develop the system further and it's unbreakable. And he was right. No one he broke it. He was
0: right. I, I like that this was the last one we discussed, and and it's really the only unbreakable code. Um, so that's probably a good place to, to wrap this whole thing up. So if you guys want to share your thoughts on World War II and code breaking and uh, language in general. You can email us. We are at podcast at howstuffworks.com. We are on Facebook and we are on Twitter at Missed in History. Um, that might be a Facebook and Twitter seem like an appropriate place to continue this discussion. Agreed. <laughs> so um, you can also drop Jonathan a line, too, if you want to discuss more of the technological aspects of it with him.
1: That's right. Tech stuff at discovery.com.
0: And uh, we'll be having more of these guest host appearances with some other podcasts later on in September while Dublin is finishing out her leave. But thank you so much for joining me for this two-parter, Jonathan, and for thinking of this great idea, too. This is something that um, I certainly would have liked to talk about, but I would be concerned about describing... Um, the nitty gritty of purple or Enigma. <laughs> it,
1: it was my pleasure, and it's funny because it was my second choice of topic. My first choice had first? nothing to do with technology whatsoever. Oh,
0: was it Renaissance space? It was
1: the fields of cloth and gold? Yes. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> hey, maybe maybe, maybe some layer. other time. <laughs> that can be. I. I Expect that appearance to be done by the Admiral. Yes.
1: So. I'll get him out of uh, storage. He's in the closet right now, but I can I can easily break <laughs> him out.
0: So do you have any other code-related articles you I think
1: I think I am – well, I will say we have some great articles on our site that have, have to do with code breaking. And one of them, you know, I mentioned the multi-core approach. One that is not directly related to cryptography but is important is how quantum computers work. Because ideally, a quantum computer is such a parallel machine that it could run millions of different variations of, a, uh, of, a, of a encryption through it at once and come up with an answer very quickly. So if we ever do create a quantum computer that is workable and is scalable then we have to totally rethink how we encrypt things.
0: All right, so if you are tired of thinking about all things historical and are ready to look toward the future, you can check out that article and find it on www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.